I do have a present for you. Oh, that's it's, so it, lovely. Don't get, don't get too excited. Um, it was something in your book that triggered this. This is a drink. I don't know if you can get it in many places in the States. But it's, uh, what is it, Iran, Iran? Iran, yeah. Iran. This is like a posh version. Oh, terrific. Oh, this uh, looks delicious. And it's got maple syrup in it. <laughs> wonderful. That's Canadian wonderful. maple syrup. So Canadian I thought, how apt. I know, yeah. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. I was going to come to you today from the outside as, for some unknown reason, the sun has come out in December in Manchester, which is a rarity to say the least, but it's also a bit windy and I lost the friggin' muff for my recorder. So it would just sound like, I don't need to make that sound. You know what wind sounds like on a recorder. It'd be windy. Uh, so basically I'm stuck here indoors on like the one sunny day of the year. Uh, like that little girl on Venus who gets locked in the closet in, uh, all summer in a day. That's too obscure reference, isn't it? It shouldn't be that obscure. It is Ray Bradbury and it's a Ray Bradbury story and it's pretty great. Maybe one of you will know it. Whatever. It doesn't matter. This is part one of my two-part Christmas special. I don't know what's so Christmassy or so special about these two. They just happen to be coming out in December, and I need to do some writing. So I'm releasing them at the same time. Well, in the same week, anyways. You'll get Garth Greenwell today, and then next Friday or Monday, depending on how many Christmas dues I have to go to, you'll get Kit Duvall. I'm hoping Friday, but it might be Monday. One of those two days. Um, anyway, you're getting two very close together. That's the whole point of what I'm saying. I am off obviously joking about the Christmas special thing. These two interviews are. They're very special. Uh, they make up my two-part Christmas special because they're my two best interviews ever. Um, clearly, that has nothing to do with me. The questions, as you will hear in both of them, I'm still the old mumbly-bumbly interviewing schmuck as always. I just listened back to my interviews, and I think, who is that asshole? I, I can't do it. I listened to it once, and then I can't ever listen to it again. But somehow, despite the fact that I do my nervous questioning thing with people I don't really know very well, they come out as these two really great interviews because the people I'm interviewing are very interesting. Um, I'm pretty confident in saying that these are the two best interviews that have been on the podcast. Well, maybe not the two best, but certainly as good as the two previous best, uh, which, uh, you know, just thinking about now, I can't really name in order to stop digging this massive hole I've suddenly realized I'm in. Um, I will name one of the best interviews I've done so far, simply because it's not gotten many listens, and I don't really understand why. Um, the Emma Jane Unsworth interview I did is, I mean, I'm really on in that one. And I can't, no one listens to it. Like, she's got a great book. It's uh, really funny. She's uh, engaging and interesting. I'm assuming it's because the photo is hideous. Do you know, I do have a better photo of us to close up and uh, with better light because I set it up. But we couldn't use it because Emma is uh, looking up or down or something. Anyway, she didn't like it. 
So we had to go with this that terrible backlit one with the bin in it that was taken by some passing geriatric with the camera skills of a chimp. That was mean. Uh, don't judge that episode anyway by that crappy photo because it's it's really good. Um, there are other crappy interviews I've done that have way more listens. <laughs> As if. They're all stupendous. Um, okay, I'm going to stop talking about how good my interviews are now. Um, it is December, as I said, and just past my 42nd birthday, so I'm sure you can tell, this happens every year, I am ill and really fat as well. Um, basically, I don't know, I get this cold this time every single year, and when I'm ill, I don't cycle, uh, because cycling amongst traffic with a fuzzy head isn't the most clever thing to do. And plus, I'm always looking for any kind of excuse not to do any physical activity. Uh, I also actually did fall off my bike last week because I tried to cycle through it like some sort of tough guy and fell off and scraped and bruised mostly my ass, uh, I have to say, which I don't know why that happens. You know, most of the rest of me is completely unscathed. Ass, though, is a complete mess. Uh, so yeah, so I'm not cycling, so I'm just kind of bloating up. And it's not even Christmas yet. Usually this happens after Christmas. But I blow it up like some sort of, like if I, I, I could just have stop exercising for a week and I blow it up like this puffer fish or like a dying cow. <laughs> Insider farm knowledge, you know, dead cows, they blow it up. You don't get quality information like that on other podcasts. I was out having drinks with one of my doctor mates, one of my doctor mates, my only doctor mate, he just happens to be a doctor, get off my back. And uh, he mentioned, well, I told him that I'm getting these colds all the time. Like, I've, not just on my birthday, but I've had probably three in a row this year. I just get over it and I get a new one. And he said, well, you know, it's because you're old and your body is dying, which wasn't a very nice thing to hear. Thanks, Dr. Happy Pants. But he's right. Getting old is really lame. Being ill is one reason for the podcast being a week or so later than usual. Um, the other is that it what because it was my birthday, I actually did something fun this year. My wife and I out middle classed ourselves yet again. I've I know I've mentioned this in the podcast a few times that being Canadian, I genuinely have no idea what class I am. And I know that's quite a big deal in England. You're supposed to know. And I think that last weekend I can say I'm not working class. And the reason why I bring this up, class, is because it, the writers talk about it all the time. And there's we go into it in Kit Duvall's interview, the next one, uh, in great detail. And she talks about it a lot. Anyway, we went to London to flounce around different artists, open studios to look at and buy art. So yeah, every year we go to the RA summer exhibition, which is really fun. And the last couple, we bought something. And from two artists in particular, actually, Kathy Pilkington and Eileen Cooper, who just happened to be two Northern women. I didn't even, we didn't know that before we bought the paintings, paintings, lithographs. Uh, one's from Manchester and one's from Glossop. So, I don't know. I guess I've got some weird northern girl fetish. Uh, it's really strange. It seems like everything I like is done by northern women. Anyway, 
But once you buy something there, or if you buy something there, the artists, some of the artists put you on like a mailing list, and then they invite you to their studios. And Kathy Pilkington and Eileen Cooper both happened to have an open studio day on the same day, and that day was my birthday. So we went down and we did that. You get to actually go and look at the stuff that they do, the, the paintings, inside the studios in which they were created, which is amazing. And you get to buy them for cheap as well, because there's no gallery fees. I'm really not sounding like... I'm really sounding like one of these people I, I hate. But I'm trying to... I mean, it was just the best day. Eileen's studio was in this, like, seriously posh house in a leafy bit of London. And Kathy's studio was in this kind of ramshackle garage. Yeah, I know I said garage. It's garage. Full of, um, like, paint and doll parts. It was bizarre and really, really cool. Super Christmassy, too. So I'm telling you this story because I'm kind of... I kind of realized that the last couple podcasts have been a bit grim uh, with the things that are going on in the world. And I thought, it's getting close to Christmas now. So I'm trying to pick it up a bit. Uh, I can be a positive person. I, I'm happy to put the blinders on if for just a little while, you know. It's my birthday and friggin' Christmas after all. I'm actually, in fact, this very second eating my second. This very second eating my second. That's not very good. I, I'm supposed to be a writer. This very moment, eating my second massive fuck-off mince pie as we speak, or as I speak, which is definitely not doing my fat ass any good, but I don't care. I'm going to go cycle again next week. Why am I telling you about that stuff? Um, I know what you're thinking. Like, it's like you're thinking this artist studio is, what a middle-class bell. But hey, some people have children. We have lithographs. You might think that is terribly sad, but... I think it's really awesome. A quick subject change to quell the building rage in parents who may be listening. I don't like to diss kids too much, but I'm, and I'm sure your kids are just great and way better than a lithograph. I mean, how horrible is that? You know, tiny whinging incontinent humans are just the best. Just be positive, Rob. Be positive. Merry Christmas, parents. Today, I talked to Garth Greenwell about his book, What Belongs to You. And yes, I know, finally, the Garth Greenwell interview. He's been mentioned on this podcast by me and a number of my guests so many times that this could actually be the Garth Greenwell hour. I'm going to, I think after this one, employ some sort of Garth Greenwell embargo on the podcast because there are, in fact, other writers in the world. But I think you'll see in this interview why he's come up so much. I've seen him speak twice now, and I know I've spoken about this on the podcast before, so I won't dwell on it. But it's hard to describe what he's like, really. If you listen to this podcast uh, regularly, you'll know that I almost interviewed him for my Edinburgh Book Festival podcast, uh, which just happened to, because I just happened to be there, and he was speaking, and I thought, oh, I know him, I know his book, see if I can talk to him. So I tweeted him and he tweeted back and said, yes, he'd love to. Luckily, he couldn't do it just then. Thank fuck it didn't happen because I would have been properly steamrolled. I, once I saw the show, I realized, or his talk, I realized, you know, in addition to being quite a deep thinking academic type, 
Will he be offended by that? No. That's that's a nice thing to say about someone, isn't it? He's also an activist for gay rights. Well, for all kinds of stuff, really. And quite a powerful force in general, really. You need to... If there's one thing I've learned by talking to him today and also seeing him speak in other places, it's that you need to bring your interviewing A-game when you talk to this guy. And although I do better in this interview after researching him than I would have done interviewing him cold, I still get a bit steamrolled. <laughs> There's a, an especially dumb question in this interview where I say something about how you know, supposedly liberal-minded straight people I think I even quite arrogantly say liberal-minded straight people like myself <laughs> um, view the situation of when a like a gay person comes out to his family, and you'll hear it and you'll it's cringy. Um, but uh, and I was going to edit it out, frankly, because you know I don't need to embarrass myself any more than I already do. But it, it does lead to quite a profound discussion on uh, gay rights in general and the problems that Garth has with, I guess, to say what gay people gave up in order for gay marriage to become legal in the United States. I'm not going to try to paraphrase him here because, frankly, paraphrasing Garth is impossible. But it's a really interesting conversation that we have. And, I mean, I was obviously out of my depth. But I do think I, I do pretty well for some dumb hick from southern Alberta. Garth, as you'll discover, takes it all in in very good humor. And he also has some interesting things to say, not just about his work or what he thinks about the the gay rights movement or pride, which, are, I mean, are really interesting. But he also has some really uh, interesting things to say about the role of art and literature in general and creating empathy and understanding in people, uh, which the stuff he talks about there is... It's pretty mind-blowing. He also talks about reclaiming the word queer, which I thought was really interesting stuff. <laughs> really interesting stuff. What a stupid thing to say. And resisting the mainstreaming of gay culture. I think that this, it's a really interesting... I'm going to stop saying interesting. That's the fourth time I've said that. He's an amazing guy, and I couldn't be more thankful to him, really, for coming on this silly little podcast and dropping some big knowledge bombs. Yes, I did actually just say that. The interview takes place... Quite appropriately, but not by design, uh, he hastens to add. We just happened to go there. Uh, in Manchester's famous gay area, it was just next to, just down the road from his uh, hotel. And because it's, when was it? Was it October or November? I think it was late October we spoke. So you get some really lovely, crisp, wintry street sounds throughout. Uh, the sound is especially good on this. Is back when I had the muff for this thing. I'm going to have to buy another one. And I'm going to... I thought I, did I not say I was going to stop saying the word muff? What, what, other, what other word is it? That fuzzy thing you put on a microphone. I'm sure it's got another word. Anyway, I'm going to stop sounding like a moron. Here's Garth. Listen. How did last night go? Last night was fantastic. Um... Yeah, I was so happy to finally get to meet Andrew McMillan, whose poems I've I've loved for a long time now, for many months. And, um, and yeah, it was it was a it was a great event, and it was wonderful to follow the talk that Olivia Lang gave. I mean, it really did sort of feel like there was a lot of queer discussion mm-hmm. happening, um, 
and there were ways in which I think Olivia Lang's book speaks to a lot of the same issues that Andrew's poems in my novel are also engaged with. So it was yeah. fantastic. Yeah. That's that's one thing I noticed about you when I saw you in Edinburgh, and now is that uh, the word queer is one that you're quite comfortable using, and it's. Do you find it? it I think it probably still has kind of. Not, what's the word? Dark connotations over here, really. It's still kind of hateful connotations, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, that is the history of the words. Um, but it has been reclaimed, is being reclaimed. Mm. I think to a certain extent it's generational. Um, and sometimes, you know, even in the States, sort of older gay men will, after an event, just sort of say that they're surprised to kind of hear that word. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it does do quite different work from a word like gay. Yeah. And it seems to me that the work that it does is important. And, you know, I, I do identify, I mean, I use both terms, gay and queer in relation to myself mm -hmm. um, I mean queer is obviously more inclusive and I think that um, especially at this moment when certain parts of the queer community in very privileged places like the US and the UK have gained you know, a set of rights and protections and also a kind of acceptance that we couldn't have imagined 10 years ago I do think it's important to keep reminding ourselves of the fact that there's so much work to be done and that our community community is much larger than, you know, those particular segments of it. So mm -hmm. the word queer does that work. And then there's also, you know, the way in which kind of queer as a term, I think, resists the mainstreaming of gay culture that has been the cost of that set of uh, rights and protections that we've gained. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there is something adversarial in that word queer. It sort of suggests, I mean, and in the very, that discomfort that one might feel hearing it mm -hmm. um, is, you know, a sign of that resistance, that it puts, pits, puts up some friction against that sort of desire to kind of dissolve queerness into this sense that, oh, we're just like you. Yeah. And I mean, and this is a long-standing division in the LGBT movement as well as other minority rights movement. I mean, that movement between, or that sort of conflict between a kind of um, desire to assimilate and to emphasize the, those aspects of queer lives that are shared by all human lives. Mm -hmm. And that sort of part of the movement that wants to kind of celebrate sort of particular, the things that are unique to queer culture and that make us in meaningful ways different. Mm -hmm. Um, what does it feel? Yeah, this is this question. What does it feel like to write the, as the Guardian says, the great gay novel of our time? Uh, huh. <laughs> um, Have you read that? Uh, you know, I mean, what does it feel like? So, I mean, it, it does. It, it does. I mean, I do feel quite stunned by the fact that the book got any attention mm -hmm. at all, because you know, my expectation was that the fate of my book would be like the fate of almost all books, which is it just disappears without a trace. And the yeah. fact that it didn't do that still seems miraculous to me. And it also seems, I mean, I'm so deeply moved by the fact that um, the book has spoken to queer people and that, um, you know, queer readers and queer writers, um, you know, have, have responded to the book in very generous ways. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you know, there is... I. I you know, that kind of commentary does feel quite distant. I mean, mm -hmm. I think anyone who um, anyone who cares about the world of books knows that truly excellent books enter the world all the time and get no attention. Mm -hmm. Mediocre books get all sorts of acclaim. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. you know, the initial response to a book has nothing to do, has no predictive value. Um, on how good it is. On how good it is, and also in terms of the real life of a book, which is yeah. what happens over years and decades as a book finds or doesn't find yeah. its readers. Mm. So, you know, it, it it's very, I mean, it's, you know, it's an astonishing thing after 20 years of writing and absolute invisibility to suddenly sort of be visible. And I'm mm. grateful for that, yeah. even as it's disconcerting. Yeah. But I also, I mean, it, it really just has no connection to the real value of a book, which is secret and happens over decades. Yeah, that was good. that leads me nicely to my next question. Um, it's obviously been a mental year for you. I can't even imagine what it must have been like, really. Uh, how how have you coped? Well, uh, or do you like it? Are you, are you enjoying the... Uh, you said you do enjoy it a bit, but you, there was a, yeah. a tinge of um, you concern know, I mean, about it. Kind of everything about... Everything about the process of publishing a book is is wonderful and terrible at the same yeah. time. You know, I mean, everything is mixed. Um, I mean, I do think if you're a writer, yeah, I mean, one chooses to be a writer because one loves solitude and, mm -hmm. um, you know, privacy, which yeah. are the conditions of writing. And publishing a book is obviously the opposite of that. And it has been surreal over the last year. Yeah, because this book was written in conditions of absolute privacy. I mean, I was yeah. living in Sofia, Bulgaria, writing in the yeah. early morning dark. Um, sometimes going for days without speaking English, so the book was really my most profound um, experience of my own language. You know, I mean, that kind of privacy is what's congenial to me. And so it's been surreal to have, you know, such a public, you know, existence alongside that book for the last mm -hmm. year. And this is, so, you know, I've been on the road basically since January, and, um, and it has been wonderful. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's been wonderful. You know, it still feels like a miracle every time I meet someone who's read my book. Mm -hmm. um, have you ever, have you had any kind of holy shit I'm famous moments? Like have you met somebody? Oh, that... <laughs> uh, definitely not. You know, and that's yeah. that's one of the, the the very best things about being a writer <laughs> is that there's absolutely no risk that yeah. you're going to become sort of actually famous. Yeah. You know, but I mean, but the I, you know the literary community has been my home for a very long time, mm -hmm. and you know to um, the fact that like. You know, just the fact that a certain, you know, segment of that community has, you know, found it in their hearts to care about this book is, yeah. um, you know, I'm, I'm just so grateful about that. Yeah, I'm, I almost never ask this question uh, to writers because it can, it can imply that you're, that it's, I don't know what it implies. A lot of writers don't like this question, but I'm asking you because it just seems like, because you were a, an English teacher in Bulgaria, the main character is an English teacher in Bulgaria. I think you talked about this last night as well. Um, how autobiographical is it? You know, at all? Right. So, um, I mean, the book plays with autobiography. Yeah. It hints at autobiography. The fact that the narrator doesn't have a name, kind mm -hmm. of all of the fact-checkable information we have about the narrator is also fact-checkable information he shares with me. Mm -hmm. um, it's not in any sense autobiography. Mm -hmm. The book is full of invention. The book's allegiance is never to the truth as I think nonfiction, you know, I, I do think any narrative is fictional necessarily. I mean, I think the act of making a narrative is an act of fiction. When you choose a beginning point and an end point, and when you choose from sort of the infinite possible points of data, certain data points to create a kind of pleasing arc, mm -hmm. you are engaged in an act of fiction writing. Yeah. But that said, I mean, it does seem to me a really important difference that if you call something nonfiction, 
you are declaring an allegiance to a kind of verifiable and kind of commonly held truth. And my book doesn't do that at all. Yep. And where my book does draw on kind of autobiographical experience, um, it does so in a purely opportunistic way. It's mm -hmm. because that experience seems to me aesthetically pleasing, mm -hmm. not because it's true. And the book is full of invention. Yeah. So, you know, it is... Um, it's interesting to me, though, how sort of sure some readers do feel about the fact that it's autobiographical. And that's an interesting mm -hmm. feeling because, you know, of course, I have that too yeah. um, when I read certain books. And that kind of reality effect is a fascinating thing. And, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, we've recently had a, a very sort of potent reminder of the fact that it is an effect mm -hmm. in the revelation of Elena Ferrante's identity because, you know, those books, especially the Neapolitan Quartet, I mean, those books give such a sense of, you know, absolute confession and this sense that they could not possibly be invented. Mm -hmm. And yet we know that to a great extent they, they are, are. Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it is it is a, a reality effect. It's not reality. Mm -hmm. I think one of the other things that um, might uh, have spurred that question for me is that not only is the narrator not named, but nobody else other than Mitko is named either. That's and right. they're given initials. That's right. And what, if you, especially in the scene with uh, his, his uh, childhood friend and yeah. his girlfriend, right. you know, you've given them the same initials. The same as initial, well. they're both so you're like, I, I, I just thought, <laughs> Ima, either you're a masochist <laughs> or this is real. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Yeah, some readers have sort of felt that. And I mean, and that is the, the sort of play of it, because mm -hmm. why give a character an initial? unless you're sort of protecting a real person. I mean, that's the, you know, that's the, argument, the sort yeah. of code mm -hmm. of it. Um, but, you know, there is a tradition of treating characters in that way, mm -hmm. especially a Central European tradition, um, mm -hmm. which I think is one reason why it felt sort of congenial to this subject matter. And also, you know, it is a kind of declaration that the book is not invested with the sort of traditional kind with the kinds of invention that are traditional to the novel mm -hmm. you know there's also the fact that that you know i said that the fact checkable information we have about the narrator is stuff that he shares with me but there's very little fact checkable information about the narrator we mm -hmm. don't get the kind of david copperfield stuff yep. of you know his background and and you know how he ended up in this place and the sort of the book is not interested in that kind of cause and effect realism yep. and so using initials for characters is a way of sort of signaling that that sort of the book's aesthetic game is mm -hmm. not Realism, And then yeah. Mitko himself, you know, I mean, he is the only named character. Even he is given an initial because we're told his name is Mitko B. Mm -hmm. And Mitko is, is, is a diminutive. It's not a full oh, name. Right. It's a nickname. Mm -hmm. And it's in the nickname for Demeter, which is the most common Bulgarian name. Right. So he has a name. But he's got a nickname for his nickname But as he's well. got, that's right. He, yeah. he does. He does have a sort of, then yeah. the narrator. Is, is it Meti or something? Or yeah. Meti, yeah. yeah. Which is sort of like a, like Mikey. It's like mm -hmm. the name you would give a child. Um, yeah. Or it's like a, the name you would give a lover, an affectionate name. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, in that way, he does have a name. And I wanted him to be the only named character because I do think of the name functioning in the book as a kind of spotlight. Mm -hmm. And, you know, on one hand, a, being in a spotlight is a position of privilege. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I do want him to be the most vivid character um, in the book and I want when he appears I hope that he sort of leaps off the page and I think a name is a kind of you know vessel you can fill with um, you know emotional investment in mm -hmm. a character and so for all those reasons it feels like a position of privilege but it's also a position of exposure yep. 
and a position of vulnerability being in the spotlight. Mm -hmm. And that too feels true to to the character and the role he plays in the narrator's life and in the society yeah. at large. Does that mean that you didn't give the other ones names because you didn't want them to be as, um, not noticeable, but you didn't want to, the reader to be as empathetic with them? Well, I mean, I think in some sense every other character in the book is kind of background. Yeah. And um, there are important characters in the book. Um, I mean, especially in the third part, the narrator has a more kind of conventional relationship with a man he refers to as R. Mm -hmm. um, and that's an important character, but he doesn't appear very much. Mm -hmm. And there is a way in which this is a drama, even though the third section of the book opens out into the sort of larger world of Bulgaria, the narrator is thrust into the kind of remnants of this horrifying communist bureaucracy mm -hmm. of a medical system. Um, but I mean, the, the book really is a kind of chamber drama between these two characters. Mm -hmm. And so it did feel right to me that only Mitko would be named. Yeah. Um, you also, uh, this podcast is uh, largely aimed at new writers basically so uh, I do I, I have a couple questions about little uh, like technically things uh, about the book and I noticed in the middle and to be honest I didn't know oh is it raining on us uh, <laughs> don't rain uh, that you're the formatting is changed when it's now it's like a, a kind of the flashback scene with his father yeah um, the speech well I guess there's never any speech marks in it there's no line breaks there's no anything is that to kind of make it feel more I don't know well you tell me yeah, so the middle section of the book is a 41-page paragraph. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I did not... It was not at first a choice. Um, I mean, I, I wrote the whole book sentence by sentence, and I wrote the whole book without a kind of grand plan. Mm -hmm. I really did kind of feel my way forward. Mm -hmm. But that middle section especially, you know, I felt kind of seized by something that was not fully in my control. Mm -hmm. And it was a surprise to me that it came out as a paragraph, as a single paragraph. Mm -hmm. There is a tradition of block paragraph novel writing that um, I think the book is in conversation with. I mean, the, the sort of most famous exemplar of that would be Thomas Bernhardt, the Austrian writer. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also, you know, um, Reynaldo Arenas, the great queer Cuban writer, um, has a book that's not just a single paragraph, but a single sentence. And, you know, and that's something that interests me as a kind of technical mm -hmm. sort of challenge. But the, the single paragraph form of the second section is really, it was the only way, I think, to give the impression of the fact that the narrator is being assaulted by his past. He's being mm -hmm. assaulted by the memories of his childhood and being assaulted in a way that defeats any attempt he might have to impose a kind of order or a kind of mastery. I mean, because mm -hmm. the minute you do put paragraphs into something, you are, I mean, that is a declaration that you are enough in control of the material to organize it. Yeah. And this narrator isn't. He is immersed. He is sort of yeah. drowning. He's submerged. And it seemed to me that the block paragraph was the way to convey that. Mm. I think it's, and it's, it's, because it goes into his past, and I don't want to give too much away, but um, I think I think a lot of it, it discovers like the time where someone comes out, yeah. basically, yeah. and um, how difficult, obviously, that is. And I think for me, when I read it, um, I think a lot of kind of like liberal-minded people like myself think that you know when uh, a gay man comes out, that it's terrible at first, but you know he gets it, he, you know he finds a community, and uh, the rest of his life is like disco and freedom <laughs> whereas I think where I think yours 
I, that's such a terrible thing to say. But <laughs> but I think you're you're it's devastating. I think that uh, the the bit with his father. I I'm, I'm not. It's very rare that I've read something when you know it hits you like a truck, really. And I don't I didn't see it coming coming either. You know, I probably should have done. Well, I, I mean, I'm you know on one hand it's gratifying that you you had that response to mm. the passage. I mean, I do think. You know, I mean, I mean, the story that we tell about queer lives in these very, very, very privileged parts of the world mm-hmm. um, is that story of it gets better. I think it's really important that we tell that story. And I think it is a true story in many, many cases. Mm-hmm. In most cases. I hope in more and more cases. Yep. But I do think there's this myth that we subscribe to, maybe especially in the United States, but not only there, that sort of nothing can ever be broken. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the United States, we're addicted to this idea of starting over, of being born again, mm-hmm. and to this idea that kind of you can never do anything or suffer anything mm-hmm. that is really irrevocable. Yeah. And I just think that's a lie. Yeah. You know, and um, that middle section, which is about, in, in large part, a relationship between a father and a son, um, you know, I do think that that relationship can be broken mm-hmm. and can be broken in a way that cannot be repaired. Yeah. And it seems to me important to be able to acknowledge that and to not have to sort of deny the reality that mm-hmm. things in the world break. Um, and that yeah. in some way, you know, we go on living with mm-hmm. that brokenness. Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't think it's, you know, it's certainly not true that the narrator is sort of headed for a life just of, you know, kind of misery. He's not. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I mean, and he lives in the first and third section. I mean, he is living as an out and proud gay man. Yeah. Um, in Bulgaria. In a place where that is, mm. you know, quite difficult. And, um, and in a place... Yeah, I mean, in a place where queerness is still almost entirely invisible. Mm. And so, you know, I mean, it's, you know, things have gotten better for him. Absolutely. I mean, you know, things have gotten better for him. But, you know, I wanted to explore in the book what seems to me a kind of queer subjectivity that's very much of the moment, Mm -hmm. which is where, you know, my narrator, as I say, is an out and proud gay man. He has been for decades steeped in the discourse and the arguments of queer liberation. He believes those arguments. He knows that the lessons he was taught about his life as a child are false. Yeah. And yet he will never get to be a person who was not shaped by those lessons. Yeah. And so that experience, because you know, the book is in concerned with shame and shame mm-hmm. is a common theme in the tradition of queer literature. But the shame that my narrator is concerned with is not the same shame that say animates David, the narrator of of Baldwin's Giovanni's Room, Mm -hmm. you know, my narrator is someone who is shaped by a shame he has rejected. Mm -hmm. And that to me seems interesting. And it seems Mm -hmm. dangerous to me that we, you know, in the kind of mainstreaming discourse of queer rights, that we are so invested in, you know, the idea of pride, Mm -hmm. which is a life-saving idea, Mm -hmm. an important idea. But if that sort of, you know, commitment to the idea of pride makes it difficult or impossible to talk about these other things we also feel, I think that's dangerous. Right. So what's the solution then, or is there one? Do, do you think it needs to ch- things need to change from that kind of model to as, as far as 
gay rights are concerned or, you know. Yeah, I mean, frankly, yes, mm. I do. I mean, I think, you know, I think it is necessarily a kind of part of any minority rights movement mm -hmm. that there is a period in which the work of that movement is to take minority lives, in this case, to take queer lives and to package them, to market them mm -hmm. in such a way that their value becomes legible to people who are disgusted by queer lives. Mm -hmm. And that's what the marriage equality movement did. Yep. And, you know, and the marriage equality movement was absolutely essential. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was a necessary battle. It's really important that we won. It's important mm -hmm. that we keep fighting that battle in the vast majority of the world where it, you know, mm. is still inconceivable. Is it still... Are there are all states? Is it in the United after, yeah. States? In the United States, marriage equality is now the law Brilliant. of the land. Yeah. But, you know, um, in many of the United States, you can marry your partner over the weekend, mm -hmm. go to work on Monday, and be fired for being gay, and mm -hmm. be kicked out of your house for being gay. Because yeah. we have we have nationwide marriage equality, but we don't have nationwide protections, no. you know, fundamental protections no. against discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. So there's so much work to be done, which is one of my problems with mainstream queer advocacy organizations in the United States, that there is this sense from many of them that kind of, oh, we have gay marriage mission accomplished. Mm -hmm. Despite the fact that in the United States, 40% of homeless youth identify as LGBTQ, despite the fact that in the United States, Black men who have sex with men in urban centers like Washington, D.C. Have, have new HIV infection rates on a scale unseen anywhere else in the world outside of sub-Saharan sub Africa. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, the fact that trans women are being murdered on the streets at ep in epidemic numbers. And these queer rights or advocacy organizations are saying that mission accomplished. I mean, mm -hmm. that's unconscionable. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I think the, and there's just, I think one of the things that I... Obviously, I don't run into those sorts of things in my daily life. But I did once when I, I tried to give blood. Yes, right. Um, I don't know if it's the same in the States. Yes, it is. But this is Canada, who we kind of take pride in being a little bit more liberal than you yeah, guys. Yeah, fair Canadian. But it's not. It's, it's, I mean, it's, we're, it's, a, it's a lie. But when I gave blood once, the question one is, have you ever had sex with a man? Yeah. And um, I take no, obviously. But then when I went... When you go behind the screen, the nurse asks you, asks you again. and says, uh, right, are you sure you've done, never... And I said, no. And I said, well, what difference does it make? Right. And she just looked at me and said, well, would you want that blood? And I was just like, that, right. that was in 2010. Yeah. Like, I mean, it wasn't ages I mean, ago. this very flattering story we tell ourselves about LGBT rights in these privileged parts of the world... Um, is to a very great extent a lie. I mean, the United mm -hmm. States remains a place where queer people are fighting for their lives. Mm -hmm. And, um, you oh. know, even in, those, even in those spaces of greatest, quote-unquote, queer privilege, mm -hmm. gay people face violence every day. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, America is still a place. And here's the, the other, you know, my, the other problem with that kind of mainstreaming narrative of gay rights is that, I mean, it has come at the cost of a sort of occlusion of the body and of sex. So that, you know, I mean, the, the marriage equality movement was to a very, which again, I support, mm -hmm. was to a very great extent, a kind of marketing campaign that packaged queer lives in a way that made them look very much like straight lives. Mm -hmm. In other words, a monogamous relationship centered on the raising of a child. Mm -hmm. And, um, that 
movement sort of purchased these rights and freedoms for queer people at, to me, what is the unbearable cost of the greater marginalization of the most marginalized hmm. segments of the queer community. At, you know, I think any genuine project of liberation has to have as its goal the multiplication of models of life that are seen as legitimate. Mm -hmm. I think there is a danger in the marriage equality movement that it does the opposite. Right. That it takes, you know, this kind of diverse ecosystem of queer lives and tries to say there is one really legitimate model for what they can look like. Wow. Okay. And I do think that that is a kind of, that that comes at a very great cost and at a, at a cost that is really too high. Hmm. And so, you know, I think one of the things I want to do as a queer artist is to sort of say, you know, okay, even if I acknowledge the sort of ne the political necessity of that, mm -hmm. in order to gain these rights, these, you know, absolutely necessary life-saving rights mm -hmm. for queer families. Um, mm. Especially, uh, you know, people that after their partner dies. Well, this is one of the things. And I mean, and you know, and, and one myth that is told about marriage equality is that marriage equality is something that overwhelmingly benefits white gay men mm -hmm. in these areas along the coast of greatest queer privilege. That right. is absolutely not true. You know, the, the majority of queer families with children involve two women, involve people of color, and are overwhelmingly located in the American South and in the Mountain West. Really? Not in these huh. areas of queer privilege. And mm -hmm. in places like that, it is absolutely essential that we have marriage equality so that people don't have their children taken away from them. Mm -hmm. And yes, so that when your partner dies, you don't lose the children for, for whom you are their only living parent. Absolutely. Okay. You know, that's crucial. Mm -hmm. That's crucial. And we have to keep that in mind. And especially someone like me who is saying, okay, now... Now let's push back against what this has. Let's go back and recuperate some of these aspects of queer experience and queer community that have been further marginalized mm -hmm. in this sort of mainstreaming discourse. And let's push back against that. And that is something that I think, you know, queer art can do. Mm -hmm. We can go back and we can valorize these models of life that have been, you know, occluded in mm -hmm. this in this campaign. Right. Wow. Um, have you ever thought about running for office? <laughs> Never in a million years. Um, no. And, and, you know, and I also think, um, you know, I mean, I, I also think that, you know, like novels and art, um, you know, it's funny because, right, I mean, I've just been talking in this very kind of public act activist way. Yep. And I think that, um, you know, art and art making are obviously, I mean, it's a different, I mean, the question of the relationship between politics and art, because I do think that art has a political function, but I think mm -hmm. art can only, can, can really only fulfill that function or if that potential separate. if it is protected mm -hmm. from any kind of obligation yeah. or responsibility to sort of represent certain things or represent them in a certain way. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, I do think that, um, you know, I hope that that my novel can, you know, is participating in a project that I think lots of queer artists are invested in of doing what I was just talking about and sort of exploring and valorizing models of life that have been demonized, not just by straight people, but also by this mainstreaming narrative of, mm -hmm. of LGBT rights. Um, but, you know, I think they can only do that work if, you know, they see the aesthetic as a space of 
truth-telling that is free from that kind of, you know, explicit sense of political responsibility. I mean, it is a very curious thing and a mysterious thing that I don't fully understand. Mm -hmm. But the minute, I think, art takes on a kind of explicit political program, I think it loses its ability to be effective mm -hmm. as a political, as an instrument with some kind of political usefulness, which is, I mean, you know... It's authentic, authenticity is compromised. Well, but also its sense of, yes, it's authenticity, which is part of what allows it to be a sort of tool for, for ethical thinking mm -hmm. and a kind of instrument for the exercise of empathy, which is what, you know, I think... You know, I mean, I do think the thing that literature does better than anything else, I think it's the best technology we have for the communication of the experience of another person's consciousness. Mm -hmm. I don't think television can do that. Television can tell a narrative much better than a book can, mm -hmm. but I don't think it can give us the experience of what it feels like to be in another person's mm -hmm. consciousness. That experience mm -hmm. is the sort of political efficacy of art. Mm -hmm. You know, politics so much depends. And I think this is true of activism, you know, even activism of, of the sort that I think is necessary and does good in the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, it does depend on a kind of certainty that flattens out the world. I mean, to, to politically effective speech, especially in an age in which political discourse has been so degraded and all we can do is, ye is yell at each other. Mm -hmm. Politically effective speech has to be imbued with a kind of certainty that to me is the opposite of art. Mm -hmm. And that is true of everything I've been saying about queerness. Yeah. You know, that in fact, in art, we need to be able to explore. So for instance, you know, I talk about cruising. I've been talking mm -hmm. about cruising a lot because my book begins in a cruising bathroom. Yes. And I've been talking about cruising um, in very positive terms because cruising is so often vilified yeah and cruising has been in my life in many ways a kind of sustaining force and source of community and source of queerness as an identity that involves not only shame but also joy yeah and i've emphasized that in these public comments about cruising as a way of pushing against what seems to me the dominant narrative of cruising in the culture mm -hmm. but i mean in art you know, in fact, there is, I mean, I feel ambivalent about absolutely everything. And art is a space in which we can dwell in that ambivalence and in ambiguity and in the way that something can be, you know, one thing and its opposite at the same time. Yeah. Politics doesn't allow us to live in that genuinely human realm where we have mixed feelings about everything. Shades of, well, this, Art this, has mm -hmm. to do that. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's only when we allow art to do that that art can be a tool for deepening empathy, which is the real political efficacy of art to yeah. make us be more empathetic yeah. to others yeah. and to make us see the experience of people who are different from us mm -hmm to see that experience as possessing exactly the same measure of human value as our own experience possesses. Mm -hmm. That's what art can do. That's how art can be political yeah. in a meaningful way. That's great. It, it could be argued that politics, not only does it not do that, but does the exact opposite. It and makes you fearful of, of uh, other people and um, other, people, other ideas that are different from yours. It does for me anyway. Well, that, I, I mean, well, that's, that, I mean that's, that's the entire, you know, 
Republican campaign mm. in the United States yeah. this year. You I, know, it's, I it's, mean, not, it's, it's not just the Republicans, though. I no, don't that's think. true. Yeah. I mean, the instrumentalization of fear is such a powerful thing in our yeah. supposed democracies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I... Um, it, it does seem devastating to me that sort of we have lost the potential to talk to one another in a way that is not gladiatorial. Mm -hmm. You know, political conversation in... And not just political conversation. I mean, conversation in general, yeah, it seems yeah. to me, has become, you know, so much about battle, about... Mm -hmm you know, winners and losers, and sort of you know your argument has won because the other person is bleeding on the mm -hmm. floor. Yeah. I mean, that to me is the opposite of thinking. Yeah. And, you know, and again, the sort of imperative. This is why, you know, the most essential book for me during this political campaign has been Montaigne's essays. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, Montaigne, those essays are sort of an attempt to create a space in which thinking can remove itself from that kind of argument in which thinking, I mean, Montaigne is attempting to create a space in which thinking can happen free of contest and of power. Mm -hmm. That to me is what we need more than anything yeah. else. I think, uh, I don't know, I've, I, I may have gotten to the point where I just, I'm not even entirely sure that it, that's even possible anymore. I think it is possible. You know, I mean, I think um, in a very few places, well, actually not just a very few places, you know, I do think you know, I think Obama has been, I mean, I think there are very many failures you can pin on Obama. Mm -hmm. I think he has been very disappointing in many ways as a president, especially in foreign policy. I think mm -hmm. he's been devastating. Yeah. Um, I also think he has faced a kind of resistance no American president has ever faced. Nope. And I think, you know, one of the most grievous things we will lose when we lose Obama from the from the White House, mm. is that I think for eight years, he has modeled a genuinely presidential demeanor. Mm -hmm. And he has modeled actually this model of thinking. Yeah. I think he has modeled a kind of political discourse that rejects outrage. It is amazing to me that in the face of all, you know, that has been done to Obama, all of the kind of unthinking prejudice and racism he has faced, he has for eight years expressed himself almost entirely without outrage. Yeah, in a presidential way. In a presidential say, yeah. way and in a way that values dissent, mm -hmm. in a way that, you know, it's exactly the opposite from what Trump, you know, mm -hmm. from sort of Trump's threat to put Hillary in jail. I know, it's insane. You know, I mean, Obama has modeled a kind of thinking that welcomes this kind of conversation mm -hmm. and you know in the face of absolute no question uh, brick wall a brick wall yeah. and you know and that has angered many liberals mm -hmm. many liberals have wanted a greater measure of outrage from him mm -hmm. and maybe a greater measure of outrage from him would have been more politically effective but you know yeah, how know. moving and important it has been to see this man who I do think I do think is a great man mm -hmm to see him display in his own deportment the value of this kind of discourse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Do you think you would have gotten that with Bernie? I shouldn't I didn't really want to make this about American politics. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't even um, go there. Yeah, but I, I mean I you know, I don't actually really have a super strong opinion about Bernie Sanders. Mm -hmm. I mean, I will say that it is incredibly heartening to me 
that there was um, that there is a kind of political movement in America that is a, a you know viable political movement around someone who identifies as a socialist. Mm -hmm. I mean, just sort of taking that term and validating it and the tradition mm -hmm. behind it as viable in an American context is, I think, potentially revolutionary mm -hmm. and something we very much need. Because, you know, what we call the left in America is really center-right and sort of getting further right yeah. all the time. That's and so it. to have someone, you know, I mean, just if Bernie Sanders did nothing else, I mean, I think that's of really great value. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's hard to get back to the book now after all that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if we can, to be honest. Yeah. I had questions, but that was... I, I, I think I'm going to finish it there, because there's no Terrific. point even going into the book, because that was no. really great. Thank you so much, Garth. It was really my pleasure. Thank you. Right? Seriously, if you are a writer and you've never seen Garth speak, you really need to fix that. I know you've just heard him speak now but it's it's a different kettle of fish seeing it live uh it's not just that what you just heard it's not him playing up to the microphone i'm pretty sure that's how he is all the time you know, really intense but seriously interesting and actually and really warm as well i don't know if you noticed in that chat but there were one or two moments where i just kind of sat there blankly trying to process the big things he was saying staring off into the middle distance <laughs> before catching myself. Uh, it was just one after the other. You know, when he talks about the, that American idea that nothing can be broken, that that's a lie, or how the whole point of art is to create empathy, or that art is the space where one thing and its opposite can exist at the same time. You know, really mind-bending shit. Uh, it's criticism of normalizing gay relationships in order to make them more palatable straight America in order to get gay marriage legalized and the things that they've lost in that process um, it cra it's crazy stuff like this is it, I didn't ex I, I should have expected this sort of thing because I have seen him but I've just kind of hopefully did an okay job getting that stuff out uh, I was very happy I almost just deleted all my questions and just let him talk but um, yeah really good I'm a favorite thing he said although I don't exactly believe him, is that thing where he goes, I'm, where he's ambivalent about absolutely everything. I couldn't, f I mean, I couldn't feel more like that if I tried at the moment. I'm uh, just looking out the window right now, and my neighbors are putting their Christmas lights up. Suburbia, man. Same everywhere. I don't know what it is, though, but the lights in England really seems shit. I can't figure out what it is, whether it's the fact that there's just no planning involved, that they just chuck them up, or if the lights themselves are shitty, or there's not enough lights on each string. It just looks, I don't know what it is, it's really shit. Like, you, I, maybe it's the plastic Santas that I have a problem with. I don't know. There's just something, I can't, there's just something not right with UK Christmases. I mean, <laughs> UK Christmas lights. Uh, well, yeah, UK Christmases as well are messed up. I don't get that whole weird little bacon-wrapped sausage thing or the... And that whole stupid cracker tradition just has to die. I don't even know why it still exists. I'm going to stop talking about Christmas now. Um, next up, it will be, like I say, Friday or Monday when you get a very different 
but equally mind-blowing interview with Kit DeBall. We talk about her book, obviously, My Name is Leon. Uh, we talk about her scholarship for working-class writers, and we talk about adoption in the UK. We have a really interesting conversation about that, uh, amongst other things, including this podcast's favorite topic, money. Uh, she was in Manchester for, as the keynote speaker for Comma Press's annual Graduate Writers' Day. So she was very happy to chat about the craft itself and gives loads of good advice to the great unwashed and unpublished people like myself. Um, it's incredibly inspiring chat and you will love her. That's all for now. I will talk to you then. Bye. Bye.